They were written and recorded for our good. So help us to realize, Lord, just not history lesson tonight. It's talking about us and you and how to live a victorious Christian life. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to refresh our memories just a bit, Israel, two million strong. They're on a pilgrimage there in the Arabian desert to what the Lord calls the promised land. It's the promised land because it's the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Now, you'll recall that Jacob, who had a name change to Israel, and had 12 sons who formed the 12 tribes that will make up the nation of Israel. They left Canaan, 70 strong, and went down with Joseph to be there in Egypt. The Lord said in Genesis 15, you'll be gone for 400 years, you'll be enslaved, I'll deliver you, and you'll be back in this land. And that's why it's called the promised land. Well, they've already been busted out of slavery And they are now at, they have been at Mount Sinai, and they've received the Ten Commandments and all of that, set up the tabernacle, the portable worship center, and now they were supposedly on track to go to the promised land. But it's turned out to be a journey of 40 years instead of three months, and that was because of their sinful rebellion. Now, the first opening chapters were about beginning by organizing this group of two million pilgrims in military rank. And that's where we get the name numbers, because uh, we were seeing that every person in God's community was important and needed not to be hiding in the shadows, but to come out into the light and be counted. And so they were counted, and that's where we get the name of the book of Numbers. And then we saw that all God's people had an assigned place and calling and responsibilities. And it was a family working together for the glory of God. And God was in the center of it all, in the center tent. And uh, the first opening eight chapters, they're not going anywhere. They're stuck at Mount Sinai. They're waiting to go to the promised land. And those eight chapters were getting them ready. And I guess you could sum up those eight chapters before they start moving in chapter 9. This, If this journey is going to turn out with a happy ending, there are several principles that the Lord had to teach them before the ten pegs came up. One was fear the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 17 says, The beginning of knowledge, the beginning of all wisdom is this, the fear of the Lord. If you don't fear God, It's the first step to anything. It's the first step to getting your life right and avoiding evil and having honor, as the Proverbs say. And the next principle would be commitment to holiness with a fierce determination against getting defiled. And that's what he was preparing them for, to keep themselves from being corrupted in their hearts. Hebrews 12:14 says, "Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness no one will see the Lord." The other lessons are faithfulness and love, dedicated hearts, committed in giving and sustaining the ministry. And when they failed, God would take entire chapters to explain to them how to be restored into fellowship through mediation, 
through prayer, through sacrifice, through offering. And they were to come back into fellowship when they failed by the God-appointed way. And God would, would, would have renewed fellowship with them. And so now, at, at, we're at 20, but from chapters 9 to 20, even tonight, they've been doing this wandering. Actually, it starts in chapter 11. The problem is constant complaining about the food, the water, the leaders, everything. And they're complaining and grumbling and unbelief. Whenever there's a challenge, they just throw a little tirade. Uh, They come undone. They stop believing in God because God isn't doing things the way they want him to. They're ungrateful. They're glorifying their past slavery days in Egypt. And they're rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And their true issue was rebellion with God. And so what we've seen from chapters 13, when God says, you know what? We're done. You're not going in. Turn around. You're going to wander around. And this generation, everybody from 20 and older, none of you will enter the promised land. It doesn't mean that they're not saved. It means that they will not reach the greatest potential God had for them. They will get plan B because of their rebellion and their disobedience. And I think if I'm learning anything from the book of Numbers, it's that you can't have it both ways. You cannot have your sin and the blessings of God at the same time. He just doesn't tolerate that. Well, because they thought they could, and because they disregarded the lessons of chapters 1 through 8, they forfeited the entrance, like I said. And in chapter 13, he just says, it's not going to happen. Uh, the younger generation in 40 years will enter, but everybody else will not. They will die in the wilderness and they wander no more wander around. The book of Numbers is chronicling that. Now, chapters 13 through where we are tonight, in chapters 20, is the only chapters that tell us in Numbers what the wandering was like. Because tonight, already, it's over. We've done 40 years. Now, it doesn't seem possible because we just had a few isolated events, but we'll get to that I did want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to refresh your New Testament reflecting upon this incident even tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul the Apostle writing to the believers at Corinth, the church that he planted. He begins at verse, I want to begin at verse 6. Now these things, and he's talking about things in Exodus and Numbers. Events. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us, here it is, this is why we're in the book tonight, to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink, got up to indulge in partying. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And one day, 23,000 of them died. We shouldn't test Christ, as some of them did. And were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did. And were killed by the destroying angel. These are all things we've been reading about and studying in the book of Numbers. Going on on verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, Christians. On whom the culmination of the ages has come. 
So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to everyone. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So what is he? Paul is telling the Corinthians, you guys are struggling with sin. Could you just look back to the book of Numbers and see, is it worth it? Learn vicariously to to live victoriously. To learn vicariously means to watch you mess up and go, duh, I'm not going to do that. You know, to see the pain and destruction that you have brought on your own life and to be close enough to identify with that and watch it and be able to say and identify there but the grace of God, go I. If I make the same dumb choices that you're making, that kind of pain and heartache and chaos will happen to me. Yogi Berra. It's not his, that's his nickname. You know, the famous Yankee. Um, baseball player in the 50s and 60s. It's always dangerous for me to talk sports. But <laughs> I think I've got it right so far. He said something very simple. And I've quoted him before. I like this little simple saying. You can observe a lot by watching. I mean, it just, just open your eyes. Paul the Apostle says, could you just read the stories, look at people who sin, see what happens to them, and then don't do that. That's what he's saying here. Now, see for yourself, your own proclivity to sin, you're just like they are. We're born with the same sinful nature. So the question I'm asking myself before we even start to read, do the consequences of sin look inviting? Do I continue the cycle of sin and unbelief and forfeit God's promise of rest and blessing? Or do I surrender to the Savior and enter the promised rest and blessing and faith through faith and obedience that's the question so here's chapter 20 yet another chapter of sadness to for you to just learn through observing what not to do and this tonight with a twist it's not just the people it's Moses Moses is going to fall from grace tonight in a very famous and sad incident And we're going to read about that. So it's not just the people in the pews. The people on the platform are under the same moral obligations to play by the same rules that God expects of all his people. Verse 1. We're just going to handle 13 verses tonight. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died, Moses' sister, and was buried. Now there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines, pomegranates. There's no water to drink either. 
Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of the meeting and fell face downward, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, now this is pretty important here, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence, check, just as he commanded him, good. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, check. And Moses said to them, "Uh uh-oh, I don't remember reading this part in God's command to him. Listen, you rebels. Must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But, oh, oh, I want a terrible word right there. But, I mean, everything looked fine. Like, oh, there's the water. Hallelujah. But, but, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you didn't trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. These were the waters of Meribah, where the Israelites quarreled with the Lord and where he was proved holy among them. All right. Well, if you're taking notes, you can start out with back to square one. Verse 1 says, the whole assembly arrived in the desert of Zin and Kadesh, where Miriam dies. Now, as soon as you see Kadesh, I know it's been several weeks since we've been in the book of Numbers, but Kadesh is where it all started to go wrong. And now, after 40 years, they're back in the same place. They've been wandering for 40 years, going nowhere. Chapters 13 to 20 is the record. From the day when they forfeited entry to the promised land. Now, you remember that day in Numbers 13, right? Where the 12 spies went out. They're on the brink of going in. They're right there. And the 12 spies go back, come back rather, and they have fruits and they have evidence that the place is just the way the Lord had said. But they said, no, the the inhabitants there are too big, too strong, we'll never do it. And that spread to the whole congregation. There were only two, Joshua and Caleb, who said, come on, man, this is the Lord's land. He gave it to us. We can do this. And so they all rebelled. They wanted to kill Moses. They dragged him out. They were going to kill him and elect a new leader and go back to Egypt. And God said, done. You guys aren't going. That's where it happened. So I just want you to see this, that that was fast. Forty years have passed. We're done. We've only had a few events for 40 years. It's like the Lord saying, look, I don't want to bore you. This is the, these are the three uh, incidents that kind of sum up what went on for 40 long years. Sin. <laughs> Rebellion, chastisement, repentance. Sin, rebellion, chastisement, repentance. And it goes on and on and on. And so God takes a sampling for us to see. But now we see in verse 1, they're back 
at the same place. And let me just say that, number one, rebellion gets you nowhere with God. When you're not walking with God, you will not get to where God wants you to be because you, you have uh, hindered God who has the plan, who enables you to get to that place and become who you're supposed to be. So if you're not walking with the one who should be leading you and gracing you with the ability to become who you're supposed to become, you're offending the very one who's leading you to that destination. How in the world? You're just going to go around in circles and circles all your life. And that's really the meaning in the first month. Well, what does that mean in the first month? He's saying it just it's been the first month for 40 years. They're back at Kadesh again. Nothing has changed. And you see them doing the same thing again. You know, God says, okay, we're going to hold off the water. Let's see if anything's changed. You know, I've been providing water for 40 years and food. And their sandals haven't grown old. And they've had a pillar of fire by uh, night and a cloud by day to protect them and leading them in the presence of God with them. Has anything changed? Just let's hold the water for for. Eight hours. No, nothing's changed. They're back. And whenever you fall away from the Lord, nothing has changed. And you know, it's just the opposite of what God wants for you, what Jesus wants. Uh, In John chapter 6, a very often overlooked part of the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, when he gets in the boat, it says they're three and a half miles out. And then when Jesus, it says, I'll just quote it, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were going. That's a miracle. They're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus gets in the boat, he's walking on the boat, on the water, that is, gets in the boat. When he gets in the boat, they arrive at shore. Why? Because they're cooperating. They're willing. They let him in. He's doing his thing. And that's a beautiful picture When you're walking with the Lord, you're going to get where he wants you to be. You're going to become that person who God wants you to be. But if you're resisting him, you're just going to wind up. It's going to be the first month at Kadesh. And now with a demonstration of the visible fulfillment of what God said, death. And who's dead? It's Miriam. Now, oh, by the way, we know 40 years, it's the 40th year of wandering because Aaron is going to die in this chapter. And in Numbers chapter 33, it dates Aaron's death as in the 40th year of the wilderness wanderings. And so gone 40 years and they're back to square one. But sad, Miriam, Moses' sister, very courageous woman of God. Has passed away. There's no exception to God's uh, principles to live by, even if you're Moses' sister. You see, there's no exceptions when it comes to walking with God. We must do so His way, even if you're a famous person like Miriam. Now, you remember Miriam, she saved Moses' life, right? She brokered the um, agreement. For Pharaoh's daughter to be nursed by Moses' true mother for money. That was Miriam. And then, that was in Exodus chapter 2, I believe. 
And then in Exodus 15, she leads the women in these praise songs, and she's called a prophetess. And they sing, the horse and the rider has fallen into the sea after they have crossed through the Red Sea. The only black spot on Miriam's resume was when she got indignant with her brother Moses and stood against him in envy. And the Lord dealt harshly with her for that. But, you know, Psalm 130 verse 3 says, Who, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand, O Lord? And so, you know, I like this quote by David Guzik. No matter who we are, we're Moses, Aaron, or Miriam. We got to play by God's rules. Many people deceive themselves into thinking they have a special exception from God, believing they're a special case with their own special arrangement with the Lord. If Moses and his sibs had no special deal, we should not be so arrogant to think that we have our own deal with God and that the grace of Jesus will automatically exempt us from all consequences of poor choices. And so, continuing on, verses 2 through 5, the water, the water shortage combined with the desert heat with a little thirst brings out the worst in them again. And we see them repeating their old faithless patterns. So you can, if you're taking notes, put down back to the future. A little bit of hardship reveals the deplorable state of their hearts. Now we've talked about this a lot because it's a pattern we see in this book. He turns up the heat. He does things and maybe we're a little uncomfortable or inconvenienced. And then suddenly we see what truly is on the inside. It's seldom that when you're blessed outwardly and you're not struggling that we actually know what's going on inside. But if you turn up the heat, we can tell. So difficulty has a way of exposing the heart. And clearly their hearts are not right again. Bad attitudes, pessimism, lack of faith, spiritual amnesia for all the good things God has done. You know, hardship will either make you more mature or it will make you more childish. Just because you suffer doesn't mean it's going to work out for good. You have to cooperate according to God's principles. Instead of letting perseverance finish its work so that they could be mature and complete, like James 1, not lacking anything, they short-circuited the whole process with rebellious whining. So what do they do? They blame, they despair, they throw a temper tantrum. Instead of praying and trusting And waiting patiently, which is the whole purpose of hardship in the Christian's life. It's to draw us closer, to cause us to seek, to trust, to learn how to trust and wait upon God. When everything seems contrary to us, that's when our faith is growing the strongest. You know, he says, count it all joy when you fall into trouble because you know the testing of your faith is producing something good. But he says, cooperate with that. Don't short-circuit the process there. You know, they were saying, how dare God let us be thirsty? And so what do they do? Here's the breakdown. Number one, they say, you know what? Number one, too bad we didn't die back in Numbers chapter 16. You know, when God came down and brought the smack down on 250 rebels, which he did, number 16, that's what they're talking about. We wish we would have died with them. Well, of course they don't really mean that. But they're whining. 
I mean, whenever you don't get your way and you want to pout, you want to say, I can't believe God is forcing me to have to struggle through something. And now I just wish, you know what? Instead of this, I just wish I were dead. And that's what they were saying. I know nobody else ever said that. Or number two, here's what they say. Why did you, Moses, bring us here so that we could die with our animals? Uh, Did Moses bring you here? That's just an old story. Number three, now, thanks to the older generation, the new ones, you know most of the older ones are gone. These are the new ones. And they're acting like who? Just like mom and dad. What a coincidence. Thanks to the older generation, they think Egypt is a good place. They'd never been to Egypt. How'd they hear about that? The testimonies? You know, sometimes I hear a Christian testimony and I think, whoa, wait a second, I'm going to talk to you afterwards. Because there's a little bit of bragging. There's a little bit of glorying. And just exactly how bad and nasty you were. All right? Uh, Spare us those details. You know, we don't need to know. You know how many banks I robbed? You want to know that? You want to know how much cash I had? You want to know how many drugs I did? You want to know how many women I had? Do you want to know? And the list goes on and on and on. And then suddenly somebody's thinking, oh, that sounds kind of inviting. Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. Why'd you take us out of Egypt? From what we heard at the testimony meetings, it was kind of exciting back there. All right. So, lastly, or second to lastly, they also say, figs, pomegranates, grapevines. Where are they? It's the desert. They don't grow here. You know what? They don't grow here. You know why? Because you and your poor choices and your parents brought you to this place. And if you want the luscious fruit, you'll have to behave properly through the wilderness time. And right now they're getting ready to march for the promised land. So we're getting ready to go in. But you're going to have to go through the wilderness time faithfully, with a good attitude, with faith. Stop whining. Stop making it Harder. Stop making the pilgrimage longer so that we can get to those pomegranates and grapevines. Amen? If you want luscious fruit, then learn the lessons, get right with God, and do His will. Period. He says, unplug from evil. Make the law of the Lord your delight. Meditate on it day and night. And you'll be that beautiful sturdy, stable tree, yielding fruit in its season. What a joy. He makes it so easy. Unplug from evil and make God and his word your delight. Done. Blessed. Six verses. Psalm 1. It's not very hard. And then they say, P.S., and there's no water. Well, that was the problem to begin with, wasn't it? Oh, the last but not least, and besides, <laughs> there's no water. Well, doesn't this ring a bell? 40 years, 40 years. Has anyone died of thirst yet? No. 
40 years, a lifetime of coming through for them with food from heaven. All of these miraculous things. But they just, you know, they got spiritual amnesia. Every single time there's a challenge, everything God has done for 40 years is wiped out. This is a brand new trial. Oh, well, it sounds pretty familiar. I could count maybe three or four times. It's the same passage. It feels like I'm reading another chapter from the Bible. Oh, no, but this is the one time I won't make the rent. This is the one time I'm going to die. This is the one time he's going to let me down. Well, you might not make the rent and you might die. But God is not going to let you down. He is not going to let you down. He's not in the business of investing his only begotten son in you and then letting you drown. That's just not kind of his M.O. All right. Sunday we sang, Come Thou Fount. It's a great song. It's a great hymn. But it has a line in there I'm sure most people don't know. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Samuel and the Israelites are under attack by the Philistines. And they cry out. Samuel offers a sacrifice, and God falls down, and the Philistines go running. And then Samuel takes a monument stone, raises it up, and calls it Ebenezer, which means, you know what? Up until this point, God has been our help. So every time that another challenge comes, I've got a stone right there that I'm going to look. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither, thither, and all of those wherefores, you know. All right. I got something to look at to say the same God that bailed me out that time is going to take care of me until my last breath. Please. Stop with the spiritual amnesia. Every single challenge is brand new. We all got to get saved all over again. Same God. He expecting, he's expecting any second for us to grow up. Any second now. Where, where we're just going to go, oh, okay, God, I'm going to actually just calm down, take a deep breath, and I'm going to entrust you with this. I'm going to... I'm going to let it ha- work in me. I'm going to still praise you. I'm not going to throw a temper tantrum. I'm not going to isolate and pout and not cooperate and not give. Oh, because, you know, I asked somebody, I saw in the parking lot once during service, afterwards, why don't you come into church? I'm going through a lot. You're going through a lot. So you sit outside the fellowship. I just needed a break because I'm struggling. I needed a break, so I'm struggling. So I don't draw near to God and worship him. I don't seek him. I don't ask for his help. I don't go to people to pray. I don't go to the pastor. I don't sit under the word of God. I isolate. I withdraw like a little baby. Any second, he's waiting. For his people just to grow up. Just to stop acting like little spiritual babies. Can we move on? (laughs) All right. You you do know that one finger goes out and three go back at me. 
right? You understand. I'm under more conviction than you think. All right. So, verses 6 through 13, the end of the sermon, the sad part of the story. Moses and Aaron seek the Lord. The Lord gives instruction. He says, gather the people, take your staff, speak to the rock. You'll get water. They gather the people. He grabs the staff from the presence, but he goes into a rant. He strikes the rock twice. Water flows, and so does something else. (laughs) God's anger. So he says to Moses, you won't be going the whole way, kid, because of what just happened. Sorry. Now, I want to um, make a point here. You can write down. My points have been, by the way, rebellion gets you nowhere. No exceptions when it comes to walking with God. You've got to walk by his rules. Three was difficulty reveals the heart. And this final one, beware of impulsive sinning. A momentary lapse in judgment is enough to take anyone down, even Moses. Moses didn't wake up that morning and say to himself, you know what, I'm going to throw 40 years of hard work into the garbage. I'm going to forfeit and short-circuit God's best plan for my life today. He didn't wake up thinking that. He didn't intend that to happen. Um, He didn't say, I'm going to disqualify myself from entering the promised land today and sabotage my life's work. He didn't say that. Now, here's a nice quote. Sin that often destroys a marriage of decades or unravels a career of a lifetime happens in a few split seconds when in foolish impulsiveness a man or a woman engages evil promptings without thinking of the devastating consequences. We tend to think that if it's just in a second and we're not really intending it, and we just give in to a prompt just one time. We just swerve just a little bit. You know, I haven't swerved for 40 years. You know, I'm just going to swerve just a little bit. Look what happens even to somebody like Moses. He, it starts out really good. Familiar trouble. They take it to the Lord. The fa- first, face, first step is right. They fall face downward. They cry out. And God says, here's what you do. Gather them together, take the rod, don't use the rod, speak to the rock, and you'll get your water. So the people are gathered, he takes the staff in hand, and then it starts. My sister's dead. My brother's going to die in this chapter. He probably knows that. I've been with these people (laughs) 40 years. And they're doing this again. He snapped. So he goes on a rant. You rebels. Now, when God tells the pastor to say, you know what, call them a bunch of rebels. You know what? He could call them a bunch of rebels. He can be harsh when God says there's firmness needing, needed to be spoken here. But God didn't say a word about that. He said, give him water. Just speak to the rock. And he said, "Uh, no, I'm done with them. You, no good, ungrateful. You know, you think it just stopped with one sentence? I don't think so. I think he went on, you know. You rebels, 
beating the sheep? Listen, there is nothing more frustrating than when a pastor sees a sheep go out into the parking lot when they need help, and they're out there destroying themselves or letting themselves be destroyed. There's nothing more frustrating than that. And instead of going out after and just going, rolling my eyes and being sarcastic and that kind of thing, to to be caring and loving. Every leader has to remember that there's a price to being a leader, and that is dying to yourself and putting that person first and loving and carrying them even though you're inconvenienced and bothered or by it. You have to be patient, and he lost his patience, and he's beating the sheep, and God doesn't like that very much. And so instead of speaking to the rock, what does he do? He takes the rod, and he strikes it in anger. Can you see him? He is furious. He goes, you want water? Oh, the second thing he did, he said, oh, now we have to give you water. Oh, excuse me, Moses. Who gives them water? Not you, Moses. You don't put yourself in the place of the Lord. And that's what he did. And a lot of leaders do that. Suddenly, oh, it's all about my gifting and my teaching and my administration. And, you know, you're coming to me and not him. He's the over-shepherd. I'm an under-shepherd. I'm a, I'm a small M manager of a little group of people that, that we pastor together. You see? But the worst thing of all was taking the rod and smashing that rock twice. Little did he know how important that was. Now, why is it important? In Exodus 17, the rock is a picture of the Lord. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 10:4, they all drank from the spiritual, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Oh, now we're going to start to understand the severity of what just went down. He's working with a type. The Lord is painting a picture of Jesus Christ with this rock. He strikes it under God's command in Exodus 17 once. Boom, the water flows. Because just as Christ was crucified once, the water flows. When John 4 records Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman and says, Hey, woman, if you only knew who it is you're talking to, you would ask me and I would give you this living water. You'd never have to thirst again. And then in John 7, he says, If anyone believes in me, up from his heart or innermost being will flow these waters of life. But it came at a cost. And from the cross, we find out the complete fulfillment of Exodus 17 when he strikes the rock and water of life flows that keeps him alive. The fulfillment of that is Jesus on the cross. John 19.34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a rod. Come on. And what flowed out? John 19.34, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The fulfillment of Exodus 17 with that one strike is John 19.34. One time he dies and now he's made it so nobody's got to die again. Not Jesus, not a lamb, nothing. 
Now salvation is for the speaking to the rock. For if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved if anyone calls on the name of the Lord. The rock. Speak to the rock. Moses ruined a biblical prophetic picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus does not die three times. And nor does anything else need to be done to that rock except speak to it. Speak and be saved. The word is close to you. It's in your mouth. It's on your lips that if you confess, Jesus is Lord. You see? So God says, Moses, your sister, your brother, you, you're all part of the 20 and older club. You're not coming. That's sad. Did you notice the water flowed anyway? Moses could have walked away like I implied and think, oh, sheesh, that's fine. Everything's cool because if I... um, measure my ministry and my effectiveness and my standing with God by how he uses me, ah, I think everything's cool. Wrong. He just sinned the worst sin he's ever sinned in his life and will cost him the worst penalty of his life. God used him. Because why? Because God cares for the people. He'll still keep using the leader who he's gifted and called. You will never know what's going on sometimes. Sometimes you find out later. The person wasn't even walking with God. But the water still flowed. Why? Because his love for them. Never, ever try to estimate whether you're doing okay with God by how God is using you. That is not the measure. God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. He gives them without finding fault. You can't say, oh, because somebody just got saved and I must still be okay with the Lord. Wrong logic. Balaam's donkey was used to the Lord. Come on. The only measure for you is in your heart. Are you intimate with Christ? Do you know him? Do you talk to him? Does he talk to you every single day? Are you in a living, intimate connection of life-giving flow from God into your own soul? And are you walking with him in the light and being obedient? That sometimes only you know. Nobody else in this room knows except God and you. Is it perfection? No. And I think we all know the difference when we're just walking with the Lord and doing as he commands. I want to close with this little note here. Beautiful picture here. Miriam dies. She represents the prophets. She's a prophetess. But Miriam can't take us in. The prophets can't take us in. Aaron dies. He he can't take us in. He represents the priests. The high priest can't take us in to the promised land. Moses represents the law of God. He dies. He can't take us in. The law can't take you in. The priests can't take you in. The whole Old Testament combined cannot take us into the promised land. Who does it all go to? Joshua. What's Joshua's name in the Hebrew? Yeshua. 
Of course, now the picture makes sense. Prophet, out. Priest, out. The law, no way. False, short. The beautiful, perfected inadequacy of the Old Testament. Seen here. They're all dead. But Yeshua, Yeshua, the Lord is salvation. He will take you into the promised land. If ever, the Hebrews of the book of Hebrews, they were Jewish Christians wanting to go back to Judaism. The whole book of Hebrews is to convince them not to. And what does Paul say? In, in, well, most people think it's Paul. but He doesn't sign it. Hebrews 7. We have a better hope than the Old Testament. Hebrews 7.22, we have a better covenant than the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, we have better promises than the Old Testament. Hebrews 9, we have a better sacrifice. So what is he saying? He's saying, you got it made. You don't have to live in that cycle. You don't have to live in the Romans 7 thing, doing the things you don't want to do. Not doing the things you should do. You don't have to live in that anymore. Because you've got these better promises. This better covenant. This savior. This deliverer that doesn't die. Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes breaking that cycle possible. So the choice remains. It's still possible to live in a frustrating cycle of sin and falling short of that rest. Or... Surrender to the Savior, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and enter the promised land daily by faith and obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love. I, we just want to avoid <laughs> grieving the Holy Spirit for the sake of the love of God, first of all, but then also, Lord, for the sake of avoiding chastisement and plan B instead of plan A. We want plan A, Lord. We say we want plan A. uh, Nobody wants the cost of plan A, which is just obedience and faithfulness, not perfection. Just staying close to our Savior and doing as you prompt us to do. Father God, help us to remember, you said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light, and your burden, your commandments are not burdensome, but they are sweet to us, Lord. So we thank you. We look to you for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. I just feel my heart just on fire for all of us to be careful with our Christian lives to watch impulsive sinning. Watch out for the dangers that can last a lifetime of just one little stupid move. We pay attention and walk with Christ in carefulness and soberness of heart so that when we do see the Lord, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That at the end of our lives, we, we'd understand we hit the bullseye for which God intended us. I want to hit the bullseye. And it just means walking with the Lord in his light, obeying his word, 
loving him with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. How hard could that be? <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we admit it sounds so easy and it's so hard to do. We're distracted by the world. We have a spiritual enemy and our own sinful proneness to wander. We pray, Father, against all three hindrances to hitting that bullseye. Father God, that by your grace, he who's in us greater than he that is in the world, that through all the great and precious promises you've given us and the grace of God and the faith which overcomes the world, that we too, Lord, will overcome and reach our fullest potential for you in this life filled with peace and joy and love and good fruit. We want this with all our hearts. Help it to be so as we cooperate and obey you. Faithfulness, the grace of God. Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you Sunday.